From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Imagine a gut bacteria so strong it resists almost all of the high-powered antibiotics we have. It's called Clostridium difficile, also known as C. diff, and it can be extremely difficult to treat. But a new approach, fecal microbiota transplant, has shown promise. While it may sound gross, it was a lifesaver for one patient. We'll hear from her and her physician who performed the successful fecal transplant. Also on the program, information about Mayo Clinic's Living Donor Kidney Program, which is decreasing the wait time for kidney transplants. And we'll learn about the viral infection, hepatitis C. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. In September of 2015, while she was attending college, Stephanie Bennett was suffering from nausea and diarrhea, and it hung around for weeks. When she got home in November, she was diagnosed with a nasty infection of the bowel called Clostridium difficile, C. diff for short. Now, they tried to treat the C. diff infection with antibiotics, but it didn't work. As a last resort, Stephanie sought help at Mayo Clinic. What finally cured her, believe it or not, fecal microbiota transplant, sometimes referred to as a stool transplant. Here to share her story and explain fecal transplant are the patients, Stephanie Bennett and gastroenterologist Dr. Sahil Khanna. Welcome, both of you, to the program. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Stephanie, how do you feel? Uh, Much better now. Whole new person (laughs) after the procedure. Really? Yes. Were you sort of uh, amazed at the fact that, first of all, you got sick, and number two, that it hung on so long? Yeah. When I I remember the day that I first started feeling symptoms. I just woke up. It was a Sunday, and I was like, ah, like I don't feel very like very good. And then I just started puking everywhere. Really? Yeah. It was, and that just lasted for way too long and I was like oh this is like very weird um then when I went this went on for days oh days yeah weeks Weeks, because it ended up going for from September is when I first started feeling symptoms and Mm -hmm. then I officially got the procedure done in March oh my gosh yeah so that whole time I was losing a significant amount of weight because I was just getting sick all the time um I had very bad like constant diarrhea which is it's just not no, that's not good for a college fun. student. No, yeah, and especially being at school, it was a, a a very stressful time. I have to commend my roommates for really helping me out because <laughs> I was in bed for a, quite a long time, and they would come and bring me Gatorade and water to keep me hydrated because I was just everything was going in one way and straight out the other. And so that started in September. And did you start antibiotics pretty quickly, or when did the antibiotic treatment start? Did you go to the health center there, or did you wait until you got I, home and saw that? The- yeah, I, I'm one of those kids that I'm just like, try. I don't like to go to the health center yeah. at my school, oh, so yeah. I try my very best to wait until I can go to my um, normal doctor mm-hmm. back in Chicago. Okay. Um, so this was in September. I waited all the way until Thanksgiving break. Which is quite a long time. So I you're know. vomiting and diarrhea from <laughs> September to Thanksgiving. Yes, my mom was not very pleased that oh, I waited that Stephanie. long. Were you going to class? Yes, and I was going to class, which is not the best thing. It was <laughs> bad, poor choices on myself. Um, well, I mean, but you know, all hindsight, yeah. uh, let's yeah. just let it go. She's yeah. fine now. <laughs> okay, so you started antibiotics at Thanksgiving time. Thanksgiving break was when I went home and I did a stool sample test, and then 
it was the day after Thanksgiving that my doctor called me and said that you tested positive for C. diff. We need to get you on an antibiotic right away. So I did. Oh, actually, I started off with Flagyl. So I did the 10-day Flagyl, which was my body did not react very well to it. That was actually the lowest point of me having C. diff. I could not get out of bed that whole time because it was... (laughs) Are you still going to school at this point? or had Yes, you, oh still my going gosh. to school at this point. All right, keep going. And then, so this now <laughs> brought us to winter break, and I went home, got another stool sample test, came back positive. Mm-hmm. Then we moved to vancomycin, which is the second round, like Dr. Mm-hmm. Connor said, another round of antibiotics. Um, did that, did another stool sample test, came back positive, did another round of vancomycin, Still came back positive after that, and that's when my doctor was like, okay, we need to get you up to Mayo, and I was fortunate enough to be hooked up with Dr. Kana. Your new BFF. Yes, who (laughs) saved my life. It was night and day after the procedure. Well, that that is sort of strange. Did did the infectious disease doctor say, I I can't believe this, or this is fairly common that... People don't, uh, we can't cure people with the antibiotics you've had, or what did he tell you? Um, Well, I learned so much when I came up here. So when I first kind of figured out, like, what C. diff was, actually, like, research on my own, I, like, oh, like, this is, like, super contagious and things like that. And I thought it was more rare, but coming up here, Dr. Khanna taught me that uh, it isn't as rare as you can imagine. I believe you said that almost, like, every day people can come in contact with this bacteria, Mm -hmm. but you're one's body can kind of just like fight it off where mine for some reason did not for whatever reason huh you have no idea where you picked it up no the only idea is that i could have i was in a hospital a couple weeks before that i started feeling symptoms but we still couldn't pinpoint the time that i where actually picked it up is that the usual case dr Kana? that there's really no way of knowing where you contract the c diff that's true. So just putting everything into perspective, we see about 450,000 C. diff infections in this country every year. Wow. Half it, a million. Ha- about oh, half yeah. a million. That's the estimates. And it was previously thought that C. diff only affects the elderly who are in the hospital and who have received antibiotics. Now, Stephanie is the exact opposite. It's a young person who has not received antibiotics because of something else before C. diff started and was not hospitalized. So we're seeing C. diff more and more out in the community. Studies have shown that it's in the walls of meat processing plants, water sources, food sources, another person's hand, uh, public restrooms. It's been uh, isolated from everywhere. We're also seeing more and more young people who've not been exposed to antibiotics who get C. diff. Study done from Olmsted County published a couple of years ago demonstrated that 40% of C. diff actually happens outside the hospital, and of those 20% have not received antibiotics. So bring us to a point that if you have someone like Stephanie who has unexplained diarrhea and other symptoms, C. diff should be kept in mind. It doesn't only happen to the elderly who are in the hospital. We're now now seeing more and more of this nasty bug outside the hospital. Do the antibiotics usually take care of the C. diff, or is that becoming that that doesn't work at all? So the expected rate of recurrent C. diff after a first round of antibiotics is about 20% because these antibiotics, who, which are used to treat C. diff, actually kill the normal or the healthy microflora in addition. After two episodes... The, the microflora, the, the, the normal healthy bacteria. The normal healthy yeah. bacteria are also killed. In your usual state, you probably have anywhere between 500 and 1,000 different kinds of bacteria. And these, you need those guys. You need those guys, that healthy need, bacteria. You absolutely <laughs> need those guys because they help colonization resistance sure. all the time. 
But after a second episode of C. diff, the risk goes up to 40%. And after a third episode, it goes to 60%. So that's where your odds of getting it back over and over again and people getting sicker every time when they get it just keep on increasing. All right, Dr. Khanna, Stephanie said you saved her life. So she finally came to Mayo uh, in 2016. Is that right? Yes. Beginning of this year. What did you do that saved her life? So I'd say that we did uh, something called a stool transplant or fecal transplant to help uh, Stephanie alleviate her symptoms. Because if C. diff is untreated, it can keep making people miserable over and over again. Of the 450,000 people who get C. diff, the rate of mortality is about 29,000-odd people die from C. diff every year. So a lot of people die. Most don't, but a lot of people die. What we did for Stephanie was to correct the root cause of this problem. The root cause of this problem is not having enough good bacteria in your colon to fight against the C. diff. These medicines that are used for C. diff actually just kill the vegetative forms and not the spore form of C. diff, which actually tends to live in the body and it's left on the body's own ability to fight against it. So what we did for Stephanie was to take stool from a healthy person or a stool donor. Like there are blood donors, we have stool donors who donate stool and we were able to do a colonoscopy and implant that stool into Stephanie's colon to get rid of this infection. An incredible story. Ms. Stephanie Bennett, now you mentioned that you were in the hospital. Are you a nursing student? No, I actually, uh, to clarify that, I work for, I'm a communications major, so I was okay. doing a project that took place in a hospital where I was there about six, seven times. Um, so that was the only type, but that was like weeks before, like maybe a month before I even started feeling symptoms. So that's the only possible, maybe likely scenario that I picked it up there. But again, we don't know for sure. It's always a good idea to stay out of the hospital. If <laughs> yeah. you can. All right, Stephanie Bennett and Dr. Sahil Kahana, we're talking about fecal transplants. We'll be back with a lot more and hear how they work and why they work when we come back after a short break. Plus, we're gonna, and we're going to find out, myth or matter of fact, anyone can be a stool donor. Myth or matter of fact, you're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with Dr. Sahil Kahana and Ms. Stephanie Bennett. She is a victim of a fairly common bacteria known as C. difficile. She tried antibiotic treatment and it wasn't successful. Her doctor in Chicago referred her to the Mayo Clinic where she ended up seeing Dr. Kana. And Dr. Kana was just explaining to us why he used a fecal transplant to cure her. And so in order to have that stool to use for that transplant, you Somebody's need to have a donor. Yeah. yeah, and so that brings us to myth or matter of fact. Anyone can be a stool donor. Is that a myth or is that a fact, Dr. Kana? I would say that's a myth. Not everyone can be a stool donor. Our understanding of the gut microbiome has increased over the last five years or so. We've known that a lot of diseases are associated with alterations in the gut microbiome. Common diseases like being overweight or obesity, diabetes, some neuropsychiatric illnesses, lots of GI illnesses like irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, and infections like C. diff are all associated with alterations in the gut microbiome. We don't understand the cause and the effect uh, equation here, but what we do understand is that people who need to be stool donors in today's world need to be free of all these common ailments. So somebody who has to be a stool donor actually has to be a young person, has to not have any of these common ailments or be at risk of any of these common ailments that I just mentioned, and then also they have to be pass screening tests so they don't should not be carrying any bacteria in their 
uh, colon, which could be pathogenic. So we screen them for about 20 different kinds of bacterial infections in their colon. And then we also screen them for other communicable diseases like HIV, hepatitis, and uh, syphilis. In addition, we screen them for a detailed health history and a travel history. So if you look at all the exclusion criteria, a vast majority of our population actually would not qualify to be a stool donor. A study done out of MIT demonstrated that less than 2.5% of everybody who applied to be a stool donor at a stool bank that has been set up in Boston were qualified to be stool donors. That's a stool bank. <laughs> Is this a paying position? I mean, do you, do you have people who want, obviously want to do this, but do you get paid for it, I assume? So the stool bank in Boston, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, actually does pay. We initially started with, off of, with a volunteer stool donation program, but after recruiting the same donors for a couple of years, we have a little bit of an incentive that we pay them for every donation. Stephanie, when uh, Dr. Khan has said, here's what we're going to do, a stool transplant, a fecal transplant, did you say, I'm sorry, come, what again? That's exactly what I said. <laughs> you, I why thought, don't you just say, take this pill? <laughs> I thought he was joking at first. I like... Wouldn't even fathom that this was a thing. and But then the more you think about it, you realize how simple the idea is. It's genius when you think about it. And how did it work for you? It, it worked perfectly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And But again, when he first told me that, I thought it was like, oh, that's You're a real crazy, thing. Yeah, well, so doc- how do you do the procedure? Yeah. Yeah. So for Stephanie, we used an anonymous donor. So we've got our own stool donor bank here where we are able to take donor stool, process it in the lab, and have it frozen for our patients. We took an anonymous donor. Stephanie underwent a colonoscopy after a preparation for a colonoscopy. And we instilled the stool into the cecum. That's the last part of the large intestine where the small and the large intestine connect with each other. We take about, for every patient, about 50 grams or a little less than 2 ounces of stool. And we dilute it in about 8 ounces of salt water or saline. And we put all that stool in there. And then we quickly come out of the colon, leaving that stool back in there. Now, does it have to be fresh? I mean, are you able to preserve someone's stool for a certain period of time before you put it in? Yes. In the past, we used to use fresh stools, but that was a nightmare if a donor is not able to produce stool on that day or forgets. (laughs) So we were able to, at Mayo Clinic, establish an anaerobic chamber facility. So we are now able to process stool anaerobically. Most of the good bacteria are anaerobes, so they die on exposure to oxygen. And then we are able to store it in our freezer. Studies have shown that it may be viable for up to six months. Um, With the demand that we have, we never have to store stool for that long. We usually keep a running batch at hand. Stephanie, how how long did it take before you could notice that you were feeling better? Probably three days. I noticed the second I went to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And your stool looks different. Mm -hmm. You feel better. You don't wake up nauseous. Because I can't tell you, waking up when I had C. diff was one of the worst things. Mm -hmm. I would lay in bed, and I just knew the day was going to be miserable because... I just already felt like I needed to throw up. Mm-hmm. And when day three or four came around and I didn't have that feeling, I was like, it's like it worked. I was so excited. <laughs> Dr. Khanna, is this only used for C. diff or are there going to be other applications? Because it, it is so simple. There, it, it would be great if there was other ways that this could help people. Yes, yeah, so for now it works for C. diff, works more than 90% of the times. There are other diseases that are being studied and under investigation. There are trials going on for GI diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. There are certain trials going on for diabetes. There are trials going for other rare diseases like primary sclerosing cholangitis. So a lot of that is at the clinical trial design and with all the diseases that are associated with alterations in the gut microbiome, microbiome microbiome-based therapies probably will become an adjunct 
to non therapies probably won't replace everything but probably will be become an adjunct to non medical therapies so you call it a simple procedure and i guess in a, in a way it is but i mean you have to this you said colonoscopy so you take what we call the black snake and <laughs> all the way up all the way over and all the way back down to the very beginning of the colon and that's where you in, insert the material the stool Yes. So we're doing it with a colonoscopy right now that's clinically done. There are going to be other delivery modalities that are being tested including pill-based delivery modalities and enema-based delivery modalities which are in clinical trials right now. So more is going to happen in this field in the near future. So you can just take a pill? Could probably just take a pill in the future. Well, is this covered by insurance? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big way. Is that is this covered by insurance? Yes, it is covered mostly by insurance. Sometimes we need to do prior authorization or pre-approvals, but cost model analysis have actually shown that with the cost of the medicines used to treat C. diff and the cost of work days that are lost because of C. diff actually is more cost effective than the pills itself. We're trying to cut back on the number of antibiotics that we give to patients in the general population. Is C. diff is is a stool transplant going to the first idea when someone is di- uh, diagnosed with C. diff? Absolutely. That's going to be a thing of the future. So there are going to be some trials that are going to be looking at that right now. I think what we need to realize is that we don't understand the long-term adverse events of fecal transplant. So it's not done as the first line at this time, but as we have more understanding of long-term adverse events and more data regarding efficacy for a first infection, it's probably going to become first line. Stephanie, you've become the poster girl. For fecal transplant. How do you feel about that? Very exciting. You are on HBO, the HBO show. I was lucky enough to be on HBO Vice. You came and filmed um, Dr. Khanna doing the procedure on me. (laughs) And it was, it's kind of cool being a little celebrity around Mayo, but I do give Dr. Khanna full credit for that. I emailed him and I was like, thank you so much for. Hey, I owe this all to you. So, so I, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I should ask this in front of Stephanie, but she, I'm sure, knows the answer. If you've had C. diff once, are you more likely than the general population to get it again? Yes. You're more likely than the general population to get it again. But we've seen after fecal transplant that what I ask my patients is to avoid antibiotics. But after the fecal transplant, you should probably be like the general population as you're getting further away from the fecal transplant. The one reason that receipt comes back is with more antibiotic exposure due to another infection. Dr. Shives, we need to do the Paul Harvey rest of the story here because Stephanie took full advantage of her situation uh, as being a patient and microphones and cameras in the room and tell Dr. Shives what you do now. I am a public affairs intern here at Mayo Clinic. Oh, good for you. It worked perfectly. (laughs) You worked your way right in here. I was very, very lucky. Because of C. difficile. (laughs) One way or the other. Yes. Thanks very much, Stephanie and Dr. Khanna, for sharing your story. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear how Mayo Clinic's Living Donor Kidney Program is shortening the wait time for a kidney transplant. And later in the show, Understanding Hepatitis C. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. With your Mayo Clinic Minute, I'm Vivian Williams. Texting and driving don't mix. When you take your eyes off the road to read, type, or send a message, you're putting your life and the lives of others in danger. Mayo Clinic researchers found that texting behind the wheel is more than just a distraction. The researchers found texting actually changes brain waves. In the front of the head, we saw this rhythm occur repeatedly and consistently 
with text messaging. Epileptologist Dr. William Tatum and colleagues found an altered brain rhythm by accident while performing routine EEG studies of people with epilepsy who happened to be texting during the test. Dr. Tatum says the changes seen in brain rhythms are temporary and not likely to be dangerous. Lends more support to the fact that texting and driving is probably something to be avoided. Dr. Tatum and his team are studying triggers and the role of emotions in this new text-related rhythm. He says more information may have implications for areas such as gaming and learning more about the effect of computers on brain function. And in other news, for many kids, summer is a time to stay up late, sleep in, and hang out with friends. Waking up for that first day of a new school year can be a shock if young children, teenagers, and parents are caring caregivers have not come up with a routine. Mayo Clinic Children's Center psychologist Dr. Stephen Whiteside says routines are good for everybody. He says routines give us structure and help us complete the tasks and challenges we face each day. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website notes that routines help children know what to expect as the day unfolds. Dr. Whiteside says developing routines for morning, bedtime, and any other recurring event can make things run more smoothly at home and at school. Each family should begin the transition into a back-to-school routine at least a week or two before that first bell rings. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, do you have any idea how many people there are in the United States who are sitting around waiting for a kidney? Do you? Well, I do, but I've got the script. <laughs> okay, good. Go right ahead. <laughs> About 100,000 people are on that list waiting for a kidney transplant. The average wait time, it's somewhere between three and four years. And sadly, probably the saddest part, of course, is that people die every day while they're waiting for a kidney transplant. Two-thirds of kidney transplants come from deceased donors, and the other third come from healthy, living donors. Living donors are usually someone you know, such as a family member, friend, or co-worker, but what if your willing donor isn't a match for you? Well, that's easy. Mayo Clinic now has a program that can help patients get a kidney in a fraction of the usual waiting time by using paired donation or a living donor chain. Here to explain the paired donation program is the surgical director of the kidney transplant program at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Mikel Prieto. Welcome back to the program, sir. Thank you for having me. Dr. Prieto, well, we want to hear about it. Well, it's becoming now uh, more and more prominent the fact that when you have a potential donor who is otherwise a good donor but either doesn't match you or is not the ideal donor for you, we can offer you probably uh, to trade that kidney for a different one. So you have some, I need a kidney. I have a friend who's willing to to give me a kidney or a relative, but it doesn't match. Uh, Right. Either it doesn't match or it's not ideal for you. Let's say uh, you are 20 and your donor is 60, and maybe we think it would be nice to get you a younger kidney. Okay. So so in those circumstances, we can see what we can do and look at our pool of pair donor um, pairs and find a kidney that may be more suitable for you. So you've got folks who are willing to be a, a living kidney donor, but the person that they're willing to do that for, isn't they don't match with them. So then you put everybody at the same dance and mix it up. 
Right. So we started doing this a few years ago, and the obvious situation was the wrong blood group. So we started to think, well, if we can find a kidney that is the right blood group and, and trade kidneys, we can do this. But now we have expanded to many other reasons why you may want to trade your kidney. And at the end, what we achieve is more people transplanted, more people of dialysis, and more people having a nice, good quality of life. How many people does this kind of chain usually involve? Is it pair swap like that, or is there five or six? How does that work? Yeah, well, sometimes it's just a simple swap, two donors, two recipients, and we just swap the kidneys. But most of the time these days, we have changed who can be as short as three people, or three pairs, I should say, and as long as 9, 10, 11, 15 pairs. And uh, as long as you have people that you can match, we, can, you, we keep it going. And we can, from one uh, good Samaritan donor, we can do many transplants. What do you have to test to determine whether or not uh, two people are, are a, de- a decent match? First, I mean, there's two parts to working up a donor. First, we need to make sure that they are healthy and the donor is not going to get hurt by donating. And, of course, that they have two good kidneys. Once that has been established, then we see the relationship between donor and recipient. And there's different things that may or may not match. The main two ones are the blood group and then the tissue type. Some recipients, some kidney patients, have high antibodies, and that, that means that they are hard to match. It's hard to find a kidney to which they, they don't have antibodies against. So those are our biggest challenges and the ones that benefit the most from a program like this. So you have to match their blood, first of all, and, and second of all is the tissue match. Why is it that some people have all these antibodies? Well, there, there are several risk factors. Most of us walk around with zero antibodies, what was called HLA antibodies. But if you have had a lot, a lot of blood transfusions in the past, or, or if you have had a previous kidney transplant or other organ transplant, sometimes you start developing antibodies. Also, women that have had multiple pregnancies, sometimes because of the mixture of the blood between the fetus and the mother, they can also develop antibodies. And those patients tend to be a lot harder to find a good kidney for. How many donors do you have out, out there? More than you used to? Um, it, because it seems like you're doing a lot more transplants, but yet there's still a lot of people on the waiting list. Well, one thing is clear is that we don't have enough deceased donor kidneys to transplant everybody that needs a transplant. And here at Mayo, we have always emphasized that by far for the recipient, the best transplant is a healthy kidney from a living donor. Many of these patients find a donor on their loved ones and their close relatives, their friends. But, but sometimes, as, as we were talking earlier, those don't match, and then we need to go to, uh, outside to try to find matches for these people. Is it more likely that a family donor would work out, or is it more likely that it wouldn't? I guess is if, you're, if you share some biology, it would make sense that you should be able to share a kidney. But is that unusual, or is that more common? Well, obviously, parents and children share a significant amount of uh, HLA uh, antibodies. And also between siblings, between brothers and sisters, there's a good chance that you, you could even find a perfect match, which is the ideal situation. But short of that, many, many uh, either distant relatives or friends, they may not have a, a tissue-type match, but still are very good candidates for donation and for transplantation. If you are a donor, uh, I think it's uh, pretty safe, but I want to ask you about that. How safe is it, and are there any long-term complications of being a kidney donor? 
Well, uh, we are extremely careful and selective when we uh, evaluate potential donors. Um, living donation for kidney transplant has been done since the early 60s. So we have a, over a 50-year history of doing this operation. Uh, while there has been a few case uh, reports of deaths in the world because there has been many thousands of these operations done, it's a very safe surgery. We have been doing living donor kidney transplants on Mayo since 1963. We have done thousands of living donor transplants. We have zero deaths. Occasionally, a patient has a minor complication, things like a little wound infection, a little hernia, things that are fixable are not long-term problems. But in general, uh, we feel very comfortable, and we do a lot of these surgeries because we feel that we are not going to hurt the donor, and it ends up being a very positive experience. Is it okay to only have one kidney? Obviously, kidney donation does not prevent you from having kidney disease in the future, like any one of us can have that problem. But in general, uh, after being doing this for many years, we have not really identified any significant difference in terms of living donors having any difference in the quality of life and the longevity as regular patients. In fact, when you look at the whole population, these donors who are in general by definition healthy people, they have essentially better better outcomes long-term than the average patient. So it doesn't shorten their survival at all? They have no. the same? No. And no other other complications? You sort of wonder why you've got two kidneys, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's obviously intense study about long-term consequences of donation, and some studies show that maybe there's a slightly higher increase in blood pressure and a few other things. Those things are still controversial. The difference, if there is one, is really minimal. And uh, nobody has felt that this is something that we should not be doing because damage, potential damaging for donors. Most people don't realize how successful kidney transplantation is today. Our success rate right now at Mayo is about 99%. Wow. So it's very rare that we lose any kidneys for any reason. Now, we still see that okay, the very occasional graft loss due to either rejection or a problem with the blood flow to the kidney or other things. Those cases are exceedingly rare. Many times are problems that are fixable are not long-term problems. And over time, of course, some kidneys don't last forever and the patient may need a second transplant. But in general, the outcomes are amazingly good for these patients. The, uh, the work that you're doing, that you and your colleagues, absolutely fabulous. Dr. Mikel Prieto, thanks so much for being with us. Dr. Mikel Prieto is a transplant surgeon and surgical director of the Kidney Transplant Program at Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll learn about the viral infection, hepatitis C. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Hepatitis C, one of several hepatitis viruses, is generally considered to be among the most serious. In fact, if left untreated, hepatitis C can cause serious liver damage, cirrhosis of the liver, even death. Hepatitis C is also a leading cause of liver cancer and the number one reason for liver transplants. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that people born between 1945 and 1965, in other words, baby boomers, boomers. are five times more likely than other adults to be infected with hepatitis C. And because people who are infected often go decades with no symptoms, the CDC is urging everyone in that age group to be tested. It's estimated that if everybody in that age group was tested, it could prevent more than 120,000 deaths 
from liver disease. Pretty amazing. There are a lot of good things about being a baby boomer, but I guess this isn't one of them. <laughs> but we'll find out. You know, it's not really known why the baby boomer population is at such high risk for hepatitis C infection. But here to shed some light on the subject and talk about diagnosis and treatment of hepatitis C is Dr. Stacy Rizza. Dr. Rizza is an infectious disease specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Rizza. Nice to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So why are the baby boomers having such a hard time with <laughs> Hepatitis C? That's an excellent question. Um, the CDC, right before they made this recommendation, actually did focal group analysis. And so that's the best information I can give you, is that in the focal groups, it happens to be that, or at least what it suggests, is that those are the groups that had a higher risk because of some of their behaviors. So the risk factors for getting hepatitis C is pretty much through blood or body fluids. You can get hepatitis C through contaminated blood. So before the early 1990s, um, blood products may have had hepatitis C. Since that time, we've been able to diagnose it and screen the blood banks. You can also get hepatitis C through dirty needles, so if someone who's injecting drugs. You can get hepatitis C through snorting cocaine, particularly if you're sharing straws, because it's the blood on the straw that may have come from someone's sort of crusty nasal mucosa. Oh, my gosh. And then you give it to your friend, and they shove the bloody straw into their bloody, crusty nasal mucosa. You're actually transmitting the virus through the blood. Tattoos can also transmit hepatitis C. And epidemiologically, we've realized in the last five to ten years that you can actually transmit hepatitis C through sex, too, although that happens more commonly in people who are HIV co-infected and men who have sex with men and people who use rougher sex practices. So it's probably just that the baby boomers had a higher incidence of those risk factors than maybe some other members of society. So we sort of brought this on ourselves. Well, I, I wouldn't go so far <laughs> to say that. And again, this is just information from the focal groups that the CDC did. But epidemiologically, it's clear that it's that generation that had the higher incidence. Now, you can also get hepatitis C by being born to a mother who has active hepatitis C. So that may be a bit part of it as well. And this is a viral infection, correct? Yes, this is a virus. This is an RNA virus that infects humans. And it's one of several different types of hepatitis C, but this being the most serious. So there are several different viruses that can infect humans and predominantly affect the liver. And they were named in order of when they were discovered, A, B, C, D, and so forth. Hepatitis C is an RNA virus that affects the liver. It's one of the few that can cause a chronic infection. And if you actually look at the numbers, it's huge. In fact, in the United States, it's probably over four or close to four million worldwide, close to 170 million. So these numbers absolutely blow away HIV and many other infections. Huge numbers of people have become infected. Now, the naming of it's not very original, <laughs> hepatitis yeah. C. Exactly. But then there's two kinds of hepatitis C. So there's, I don't know, CA and CB, however you want to say it. What are the two different types of hepatitis C? So they're actually more than that. If, oh. if what you're referring to are genotypes, they're mm -hmm. actually genotypes and subtypes to the viruses. And there okay. are too many of them. Okay. In fact, there are for HIV as well. But in many of the other viral infections that have impact humans, it doesn't really matter. So they have no difference in epidemiology. They have no difference in treatment. The only reason why we care for hepatitis C is that they respond differently to treatment, and you use slightly different treatments depending on what the genotype is for hepatitis. So they're genotypes one through six with several different subtypes, like a 1A, a 1B, a 6A. Wow. So they're actually more and more of the subtypes. And we look at that to determine 
what we should treat the patient with. You know, I know you have a vaccine for one of the types of hepatitis. It never made sense to me. If you've, if you've got a vaccine for one kind, why don't you have it for the other kind? <laughs> That's a great question for all of vaccinology. <laughs> so we have a vaccine for hepatitis B, which is an entirely different virus that also infects humans. And hepatitis B is able to confer immunity by using a single epitope or close to a small epitope mm-hmm. in somebody forming a humoral as well as a T-cell immunity. Hepatitis C is going to require a T-cell or cellular immunity in order to control the infection. In fact, we know from a group of people who were infected with hepatitis C in England back in the late 1970s, early 1980s that hit agammaglobulinemia. So these are people who cannot form antibodies, and several of them actually cleared their hepatitis C infection. So we know simply forming a humoral immunity or forming antibodies to this virus is not enough. There have been billions of NIH dollars in decades of research. In fact, Chiron Corporation, which actually first described the virus, has been working on a vaccine for over two decades. And unfortunately, we're just not close, and it's not working for hepatitis C so far. I know this is a difficult disease to treat, but I believe there are some new medications on the market that that are more effective than anything you've had previously, but there are horrendously expensive, aren't they? So the world of hepatitis C absolutely spun on its head a few years ago with the invent- or with the release and approval of these new drugs. Hepatitis C, depending on the genotype, was very difficult to treat. Many times required injections with interferon every week, as well as pills you take every day, and people would take it up to a year, and even then only had a 50% chance to cure. These drugs have absolutely revolutionized the treatment. These are pills that you take, Many times, depending on the program, only once a day. Many of these programs are only for 12 weeks. Some of them are actually only for eight weeks, and the cure rates are close to 95 to 100%. Wow. So no it, more re- liver transplants? Abs- no, so that's the hope. <laughs> so it absolutely revolutionized the treatment. But these drug companies, as their gold standard, used a liver transplant to price them. So they price these just mm. below the cost of a liver transplant mm. because they put so much of their R&D into developing these hep C drugs. So the beginning programs were extremely expensive and remain very expensive. But as more and more are being approved, it's actually driving the price down slightly. And we're hoping we'll get to a point, and many activist groups have actually been petitioning Congress to actually step in and help control the price on some of these medications. Is it important for Dr. Shives and all of his other baby boomer friends to get tested for hepatitis C? Absolutely, because many people, most people who have chronic hep C will have absolutely no idea. So if everybody who is in that age group gets tested, and what the CDC recommends is a single blood test, which is a serology. And if you have more risk factors, you may need to be checked more often. If you are ongoingly getting tattoos or injecting drugs or snorting cocaine, you may need more testing. But if not, if you don't have any other risk factors, just a single test if you are born within that age group. Anybody born outside that age group who has risk factors should also get checked. But I did hear you say that the new drugs are 95% effective in curing hepatitis C. many of these, even in people who have cirrhosis, these numbers are pushing the 90s. In those who don't have cirrhosis and who have never been treated before, it's close to 98, 100%. So is it reversing that cirrhosis? That's an excellent question, and that we're, it's, it's still being investigated over time. There may be a little bit of evidence, but as a whole, cirrhosis is hard to reverse. Dr. Stacey Rizza, infectious disease specialist at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for the update on the diagnosis and especially on the treatment of hepatitis C. My pleasure. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.